0: Imagine, like, what if Bluffton became a different place because the church started to live out what she was called to live out? What if she was reminded of who she was supposed to be and we started to live that out? What if we, as God's people here in Bluffton, what if we recaptured our hearts for Jesus and we focused on Him and then we lived out what God is calling us to live out? My friends, the unstoppable church that Jesus is building is built by bringing individuals together so that they would become something new together. That's what we are called to be. To be unstoppable. Good morning, church. You guys awake? The weather's changing. Did you guys notice that? No one noticed it. Somebody noticed it. Uh, Who's excited about the change? Yeah, my people. Who's not excited about the change? You're still my people. It's okay. You You can raise them up. It's all good. You know, you can be happy about it. Um, As I'm wearing my jacket, I'm just excited for fall to be here. Uh, I just want to kind of tag on what Holly was saying. She's she's experienced the community groups and the way that we're doing them now, and uh, she recommends them, highly recommends them. Uh, And we've we've had like 140 people sign up, which that's been growing. Uh, And so if you have not jumped in, we're starting them next week. So if you want to get on the ground level, ground floor, uh, please sign up. You can sign up with our connection card and you can uh, turn it in at the uh, metal box on the way out, uh, really highly recommend you give it a shot, okay? Because uh, God will do something through it, and it may just be something far beyond what you have ever imagined him doing in your life. Uh, what, what makes you mad? Uh, what, what makes you mad? You ever thought about that? You ever thought about, like, uh, look at yourself in the mirror, and you, and you just kind of ponder, Brandon, what makes you Mad, you wouldn't say Brandon unless your name is Brandon, but you would say your name and you would ask that question. You know, what, what really grinds my gears? What gets me upset? You ever asked that question? You ever thought about that? You ever like had a moment where you're angry and you're like, whoa, what, what was that? What was that? Uh, I, I, so I like I'm a little bit of a nerd. I like to uh, look at personality tests uh, and I really enjoy them. Uh, anybody out here like personality tests? Okay, y'all gonna enjoy this, all right? Like me and like four others, okay? I'm just to talk to y'all, you know what I'm saying? Uh, so two of them that I've really found to be really helpful are the Myers-Briggs and the Enneagram, the Enneagram. Uh, and uh, really, the really Enneagram has nine different types, and uh, I'm not gonna preach a sermon about the Enneagram or the Myers-Briggs, but uh, I say all that to say that according to the Enneagram, there's something underneath the surface for all of us that is kind of like laying there that will cause us to, to grow frustrated or angry, okay? So there's nine different types. I got nine different things that may make you angry, and so we can maybe work out what your Enneagram type is just by this, okay? So uh, the first thing, uh, you, you may, what makes you mad? Uh, maybe laziness, you know, gives you that kind of face. You know, what makes you mad? It may be laziness. It may be uh, a selfishness. Uh, Like if you see selfishness in someone else or in your own world, that makes you mad. Uh, The third thing is lethargy. Uh, I'm not ever really sure how to say that word, lethargy. Lethargical, you know, that's easier to say. Uh, Lack of motivation, that may make you mad when you see that in someone else. Uh, Or shallowness, you know, you just, you're not satisfied with just surface level stuff. You know, small talk may irritate you if you are a type four on the Enneagram. You can read about it later. Uh, The fifth one is intrusiveness. Like, you just don't want people to, like, get up in your grill, get up in your life if they haven't earned the right, you know? Like, that kind of makes you mad. Like, uh, (laughs) you may be sitting there getting your hair cut, and it's someone new, and they don't know you, and they're asking you about your whole life story. And that may make you a little bit frustrated, right? If if that's you, then uh, it's all good. You might be a type five. Uh, Number six is uh, unreliableness. Uh, Like you just like it really frustrates you, right? When 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 you someone gives you their word, and and they don't follow through. (laughs) Somebody just found their number. Uh, Number six. uh, Number the seventh one is boredom. Like you just cannot stand being bored. You know, like you just don't. You always have to have something going on, something to do. You just gotta have something to talk to. You just you just need that. That's number number seven. Number eight is constraints. You don't like when people try to control you because oftentimes you feel like you know how to do things and and they are just hindering you from doing the thing in the right way. Okay, that's number eight. That's my number. Okay, uh, no, there's more to that. I'm really messed up, y'all. Uh, Number nine is powerlessness. Like when you just, you feel like you have no power, no ability to do anything, that frustrates you. Well, that makes you mad. When you, are, when you are, uh, encounter a problem that you can do nothing about, that frustrates you. That frustrates you. What makes you mad? What makes you mad? You ever ask that? Maybe you can think about that this week. And maybe you can ask your spouse if you're married. Because they could probably tell you, for sure. You know what I'm saying? Uh, but, but let me ask this question, because this is a really, a little bit more of an interesting question, because uh, we wouldn't expect it. What makes Jesus mad? What makes Jesus mad? You ever thought about that? What makes Jesus, what would make Jesus mad? What would get him frustrated? What, what would make him go from like, oh, this is a good day, to I am Angry? To to, to kind of elevate his voice to do something that, that people would normally not do if they were happy go lucky. What makes Jesus mad? If you have a Bible, we're gonna look at that in Mark chapter 11. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to it. Uh, in Mark 11, let me give you the context. So Jesus had just kind of, uh, he, he is going into Jerusalem. It's, it's, uh, the, the Jews are getting ready for the celebration of the Passover. It's a time when all the Jews would come to Jerusalem and they would remember the moment uh, in, in Egypt when, when, when God sent Moses to rescue the Hebrew people from being slaves in Egypt. Uh, God sent plagues, and he ended up doing uh, something where he, 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 he sent the final plague. And, and the Hebrew people, they, they put uh, blood of the firstborn lamb over their doors. And uh, that, that would tell the angel of death to pass over them. And, and as that happened, uh, the firstborn of all of the Egyptians, this is crazy y'all, was killed. And, and so then Pharaoh was like, I, I've had it. You know, his kid died. And they let him go, they let the Israelites go and they they went into the wilderness and and the Israelite people, they celebrated this called the Passover because it told them that, that God cares for those who are oppressed, cares for them, that he had a move. He moved them out from being slaves to now being free and now being their own people. And so every year after that, they were told to celebrate this moment. And so that's what everyone's in Jerusalem for. So Jesus and his homeboys, his disciples, uh, that they, they strolled into Jerusalem, and he sent a couple of them ahead and said, hey, go get me a donkey, y'all, okay? Uh, go get me a Ford Explorer. No, he didn't say that. <laughs> go get me one of those that, the, you know, the Secret Service drives, those cool black SUVs. No, he, he said, go get me a donkey, very intimidating, you know? Uh, and, and I'm gonna ride that in. If anybody asks, just say, hey, the Lord needs it. And, and they did ask and they said the Lord needs it. And then they were like, all right, you take it. And so Jesus rides into Jerusalem sitting on a donkey and the people are all there. Like it's, it's Jerusalem's popping, you know, it's, it's, it's busy. And the people look at Jesus riding in on this donkey. They've heard about him. They, they know that he uh, is, is a prophet, They think he's the Messiah. They think he's going to be the king who would come in and defeat the Romans and free them from oppression, just like Moses brought in uh, uh, and, and freed the Israelites from being slaves in Egypt. They felt like they were being oppressed because they were. Rome was oppressing them, and they thought Jesus was going to ride in on this donkey and defeat the Romans. He was going to lead a revolution. And as that happens... Uh, you know we we know the story right like if if you grew up in church you know the story that that they ended up killing him because Jesus was not the king that they thought he was going to be because he did not come in to destroy Caesar or Rome he came in to turn over everyone's heart toward God and so so Jesus is being celebrated Hosanna Hosanna blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord that's what they were singing that's what they were saying as Jesus was riding in and uh, as this king rides in on a donkey because he is the king uh, he, he went about and checked out what's happening with the Passover, all the celebration, you know, checked out all the stuff. And then they went to Bethany, which is like a mile and a half away. They slept there, and then they came back the next day. And then this is what we see in Mark chapter 11, verse 15. This is some crazy stuff, y'all. Just imagine this happening. Verse 15, Mark 11, verse 15, it says this. They came to Jerusalem, so they came back, and he went into the temple and began to, okay, began to, you know, hang out with people, began to shake some hands, kiss some babies. Nope. He began to throw out those buying and selling. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves and would not permit anyone to carry goods through the temple. What makes Jesus mad? What makes Jesus frustrated? What makes Jesus angry. There was something happening here that that Jesus got furious and started flipping tables, pushing over chairs, driving people out. Y'all, this is crazy stuff that's happening. Jesus was supposed to come in and get this. He was supposed to go against the Romans, and yet the king, the Messiah, comes into the temple and starts blowing up stuff there. What was going on? What was Jesus so frustrated about? What makes Jesus mad? Well, if you, if you do a little bit of digging on this and you understand the context, so the, the temple had this place called the court of the Gentiles, and this was a place where the Gentiles, the God-fearers, those who were not ethnically Jew, could come and worship God at the temple. They could pray and they could worship, and, and then they, uh, they, could, they could do that. They could participate in the worship of God at the temple. okay. But then what, what ends up happening is instead of it being a place of worship, this place has become like a Walmart. It's like a flea market. And, and and these people, what they were doing is is so, like, people would travel, right? They would travel to come into Jerusalem, okay? They would travel, and, and in order to participate in Passover, they would need to bring a sacrifice. So usually that was an animal of some kind, okay? And in order to do that, they needed to bring a spotless sacrifice, so, so the, the, the temple people, the, the high priest and his, 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 you know, leaders or whatever, decided, you know what, instead of having the market where, where people would buy these animals, instead of trying to travel with them and making sure they stayed alive and stayed purified and all this stuff, they would, as convenient, they would go and they would buy one in Jerusalem. But the temple had a good idea, right? They had a good business move. They decided they would bring that market into the temple, so it was convenient, right? So you're Jewish, you're coming in to celebrate the Passover. You don't have a sacrifice, you need a sacrifice. So what do you do? You go into the court of the Gentiles. You see that that there's some stuff available, right? And and, and you go and you buy your sacrifice. You buy your sacrifice. And, and then you have to also get your money changed. So you're, you got some Roman coins. You need to get those changed for some coins that are approved by the temple. And what, what people believe was, was happening, well, let me read verse 17 first. Let me read verse 17. Verse 17 says this. He was teaching them. So, so Jesus rebukes them. He rebukes them, and then he teaches them. That's kind of what Jesus does. He's not going to just leave you hanging. Verse 17 he was teaching them, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? Isn't that not, is that not written? But you have made it into a den of thieves. You've made it into a den of thieves. He was teaching them, this is not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. In other words, all, everyone who is not Jewish can also be participating in this house of prayer for all ethnos, all ethnicities, all nations. But you have made this place that is supposed to be holy into a den of thieves. Because this is what they were thinking. This is, this is what commentators think was happening. And it makes kind of sense. It makes a lot of sense. So as they, were, as they were walking in, just picture this. Just picture this. It's a little bit uh, embellishment, but it, it gives you some perspective on it. So you, imagine you walk into to the church building here, and you come through the doors, and you're expecting the hallway to be filled with people. And uh, it is. But it's also got a bunch of merchants, you know? Uh, and, and you know it's like going to the to the fair. You know, street fair is coming up, right? You walk by the merchants and say, "Doves, doves here! Get your doves, doves! Great doves here! Great doves! Come on, get your doves! Good, get, get your doves!" Uh, Money changing right here, discount, discount. Come on over here, come on, get your discount. It's all good, come on. Uh, we got a lamb over here, spotless lamb, spotless lamb. We're about to start an uh, auction in about three seconds. Get your, gets your spotless lamb. It's gonna be a great deal, great deal. It's an auction. So do I get one shekel? Anybody got one shekel? Anybody got one shekel, one shekel, one shekel? One, okay, we got three shekels. Anybody got three shekels? Three shekels for your lamb. Three shekels, it's spotless, it's good. Your sacrifice is gonna keep going and going and going. It's gonna be great. Three shackles? No, five shackles. And then they keep on going, right? And as you're walking, you see a billboard. It's this uh, beautiful, happy Middle Eastern Jewish. Family, You know, it's, it's like, it's the mom and the dad. They got their arms around each other. The kids are like standing here. They're, they're smiling. And this, this lamb's right in front of them, like sitting there chilling, you know. And they're like, oh, this is such a pretty, pretty lamb, you know. And it says, come get your sacrifice half off. And they're all happy to see their lamb. It's about to get its throat slit. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> this is some crazy stuff. It was like a flea market they walked into. And, and, and you have to think, too, and, and this is what commentators believe, is that uh, there was price gouging going on. Uh, that, that they were jacking up the price because it was convenient. Uh, you go to the ball games. Some of y'all friends with me on Facebook know that Sarah and I went to the 10 caps game last night. And, like, I'm not mad about it, but, you know, they don't let you bring in your own drink, Right? Right, I mean, you could go to the gas station and get like a 75-ounce pop for like three cents, but then you, you, you know, you go into the to the ball field and like this size of a cup, it's like a shot glass of Pepsi. You know what I mean? And it's like seventeen dollars, (laughs) right? Because it's convenience right there. And and you know, I don't know about you, but you like you go there, like I'm good, I'm gonna be fine, I'm gonna be fine, I'm gonna sit down and watch the game. I don't even need a drink. It's all good. But then everybody else got a drink. You smell the popcorn. You're like, I need to give me a drink and uh, some popcorn. I just need to have that. And so you end up spending like $700,000, you know, at <laughs> the concession stand, right? It's price gouging because it's not, it's not even that much money. You know, you get a hot dog for like a pack of eight for a buck at Kroger, and you need to get like this rinky dinky hot dog from the ballpark. But y'all know, anybody else agree with me that a hot dog at the ballpark just tastes way better than anywhere else. It's just something. I don't know what they put in it. I don't know. It must be something, but it's really good. Uh, <laughs> but, like, you imagine that happening in the temple that, that, you know, you're doing the money exchange and you got, like, a couple of Roman coins and it should give you this many silver shekels, but because it's convenient, you don't get that much. You know, you, the, the exchange rate has some fees to it. Uh, and, and the lamb that you have to buy or the dove that you need to buy is far greater in price than what it actually needs to be. Uh, this, was, this was an economic powerhouse for the temple. I mean, hundreds of thousands of sacrifices being sold right there in their gates. But you have to understand too, what's happening here is that they had made the temple of God into a marketplace that was making it difficult for the Gentiles to pray and worship God. Because understand, this is something that the Jews were doing for themselves. They were the ones offering the sacrifices. We're supposed to be the temple of God. That's what it was supposed to be. But they had made it into a den of thieves. And, and I have to think too, I don't know if you ever read this passage and got to this point, but maybe, you know, we, if you were here last week, we talked about a new and better home that, that God has, has uh, set up shop, set up his residence, not just among us, but in us, if you're a follower of Jesus. And that's true corporately, as the church, as the group. We're the temple of God, we're the household of God, but also as individuals, that's true. So you are the temple of the Holy Spirit if you're a follower of Jesus. So then you think about what Jesus is doing here in the temple, and he's saying, he's turning over tables, he's pushing people out. Why, because it's unho- they're making what is holy unholy. And I just had to, it hit me, I don't know how long ago, but it hit me, I'm like, oh man, that we, I am now the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so what would Jesus do if when he walked into his temple of today and he saw what he saw in us, what would he do? What kind of tables would be there that he would want to turn over? What kind of, what kind of people would be buying and selling goods and commodities that would be getting in the way of us worshiping and praying to him? What kinds of things in us would be getting overturned? And that, that made me think, like, oh, oh, man. There's so many merchants set up in our, in our hearts, right? I mean, think about it. We, we're supposed to be the temple of the Holy Spirit, but oftentimes, and I'm not just saying this for y'all. It's for me, too, okay? You just understand that. Oftentimes, we're not the temple of the Holy Spirit as much as we are the temple of busyness and distraction. Like, you know, you're talking about the merchants, just you walking up and down the street, and, and it's just... This thing and that thing and it's everything. And everybody says, get this, get this, get this, get this, get that, get that, get that, get that. And you just don't. It's like, I've got to get my kids to this thing. i got to go to that thing. i got that appointment over here. And you have no margin for God to do something brand new in your life because you're so busy you don't even notice it. Right? Anybody else there? You get to the point at the end of your day and you're laying down in bed and you're like, what even happened? Like, you're like, I should pray. And as you start praying, you fall asleep because you've been so busy and distracted all your day. I was reading this book um, for a class because I'm finishing my master's degree finally, and uh, it was this uh, guy named Herbert Marcuse or something like that, and uh, he was he wrote it in the '60s and '50s uh, or '60s, something like that, and he was talking about how the industrial revolution, the industrial age, our contemporary technological age has created all these kinds of problems in, in us as human beings and in society in general. And, you know, what he's talking about in the 50s and 60s and that had been leading up to that, you know, in the industrial revolution, beginning of the 1900s, which is a big reason why we now have Labor Day. But anyway, I'm not going to get into that right now. But, um, you know, all this stuff that's ha- <clears throat> happening, you know, employers start to look at employees as they look at the machines that they operate because more things are becoming automated, right? And so, so everyone becomes a commodity. Like, think about this. Every, everyone becomes a commodity. Everything in our lives becomes a commodity because it's about goods and exchanges. It's about uh, what do I get from this? You know, we look at churches like that, right? We're like, did I get anything out of it, right? Like, it's a commodity. Like, the worship service was good today, as if it's a good that we're trying to sell you. The sermon was good. Like, it helped me. And because we look at everything in life as something that we're trying to get something from. And he he made these points, and I was like, man, this is is deep. And, you know, half the time I couldn't even understand what the guy's saying, you know, because it was just, it was heady. But... It it presents a problem that we as Christ followers have a solution for. Uh, And he talked about, uh, you know, I I read a different book, Walter Brueggemann, called Sabbath as Resistance. And it was kind of having that same conversation with all the different things. You know, this day and age, how many of us watch watch Netflix and uh, we're watching Netflix, watching a show and a movie or a movie. uh, And then and then countless times, right? you pull your phone out and as the show or the movie's going on, you're like looking at your phone also. Like we're just distracted. We live in a distracted age. And he's saying, hey, we need the Sabbath. We need to return to the Sabbath as a way to resist the culture's influence on us of being busy and distracted. Maybe some of us are a temple of busyness and distraction. Some of us are Temples of worry. Like it's I'm as if the merchants are set up shop in our, a hallway of, our, of ourselves and, and they're, they're, what they're selling is like something we're buying. It's like, everybody worry, $5, $5, worry over here. And we're all flocking to the table. We're, why? Because we wanna be in control. We feel like we have to be you know, moving and shaking and controlling everything. That's why we are worriers, right? Because we don't trust that God's got this. Uh, maybe some of us, instead of being uh, a temple of worry, we're a temple of workaholism. Like we just, you know, in the morning work, in the afternoon work, in the evening work, we just keep working and working and working because we, we feel like uh, uh, whatever reason, like accomplishment is our thing, uh, achievement is our thing, accumulation is our thing. And, and for many of us, uh, I know for me, that can be a place of rest. It can be a place not of rest necessarily, but of resting your soul because it's something that you can do. It's right there in front of you and it's a little bit less complicated than going home and being with your family. Some of us are a temple of work and many of us, we know it's too much, but we're not willing to make the change. Some of us are a temple of consumerism, like you know, shopping is our therapy. Right? You know, so we love the fact that our temple is a, a, is a Walmart, you know, is the mall, because then, then we can, we can kind of get a little bit of exhilaration going on before we get into the sanctuary. Uh, maybe some of us are a temple of, and I think this is where most of us go, is of self. Temple of self. You know, what our young people are being taught, and, and many of us are teaching them this is that because we don't have any theological depth on what scripture actually says we just have these kind of little nuggets that we pick up from things and we don't actually read the bible so we teach our kids that you know god just cares about you getting your dreams god just wants you to be happy uh, you know god wants you to achieve all everything that you set out to to achieve he wants you to gain independence he wants you to pull yourself up by your bootstraps he wants you to go he wants you to go All the while, our young people are leaving the faith because that's what they think it is. And when difficulty comes in their life, they're like, hold up, God. You're supposed to make me happy. You're supposed to give me what I want. And I don't know about y'all, but I worship the Jesus who came down from heaven and sacrificed his life so that we would have life beyond ourselves. Too many of us, we're a temple of self, the one who is on the altar, who is being lifted up, is ourself, and this is impacting the home, the church. It's impacting our hearts. Uh, you know, as I said before, this this move of the Jews was benefiting themselves, right? It was making things more convenient for them. It was making things more uh, uh, beneficial to them, and. That's what oftentimes we do in the church. I don't know about you, but I've seen it. We want to make things about us. It benefits the insiders. And that's why most churches in America are dying. It's because too many people and too many churches have set out to be about themselves. And we are not making it easy for those who don't yet know Jesus to come and meet and worship and pray to Jesus. I don't know about you, I don't know if you knew this, but uh, doing a little bit of research on some demographic studies. Uh, go ahead and go to the next one. 58% of people in Wells County, I don't know if you believe this, but it's true, 58% of Wells County people uh, identify as non-religious. Some of your worlds are rocked right now because you think that this community is all about Jesus because there's a cultural Christianity in here that, that everyone thinks the same, acts the same, and it's all a front Most people you come into contact with in our community right here and now in good old Wells County, Indiana, do not follow or worship at the feet of King Jesus. That's 16,230 people just in our county right here who do not know Jesus. Church, I don't think we should be satisfied with that. I don't think Jesus is satisfied with that. I don't think he's satisfied with us setting up things in our temple that would, that would make it easier for us and less easy for those who do not know him. Where we lift up ourselves and act as if everyone in our community already knows the truth. I don't think we should be satisfied with that. I think we should be relentlessly pursuing Jesus. See, what happens in many churches who become insider focused and start to die is that instead of focusing on the mission, instead of the Jews focusing on, hey, we're supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations, we placate to those who are loud. We placate as leaders. We don't focus on mission. We don't make decisions on mission. We focus on what Billy, the churchgoer, who's been in the church his whole life and has a preference on something specific that we do in the worship service or or what we do in the community, we placate to their desires because we don't want to make the decision that is going to make some of the sheep mad, and so why do most churches in America not reach people who do not yet know Jesus? It's because they are so much focused on making everyone in the pews happy. More things that they do, uh, they, they, they look at um, uh, the inward focus. There's, there's no sacrifice. I'm not willing to sacrifice of my preferences so that someone else can experience Jesus. I'm not willing to sacrifice. Too many churches in our world are looking at what's in it for them. And so I think there's a different way because the stakes are high. If, if you believe that apart from Jesus, no one is saved, If you believe that Jesus is the only way, the only truth, the only life worth living, then this is serious. Because there are 16,000 plus people, and I guarantee you that number is higher because just someone marks Christian on a survey does not mean that that is what they are. But there are many people in our community, our neighbors, our friends, our co workers, our schoolmates, our family members, who, if they died today, They'd be in hell for eternity. So that's not what we're gonna be, church. That's not, what we're, that's not who we are gonna be. Instead, what we're gonna be is a, is a church that elevates mission above placating to the masses. There will be times when the leadership of this church makes a decision that you do not like. And when that happens, I want you to talk to us about it. I want you to come to me. Okay, But at the same time, what I want you to do is to ask the question, is this about me or is this about the mission? Is this about me or is this about reaching more people for Jesus? Is this because I'm not getting what I want or is this because we're trying to do things that will reach people for Jesus in our day and time and connect with them so that they would know what abundant life is in Jesus Christ? So, So... It's fine to get upset. It's fine. But we have to ask ourselves, we have to look at ourselves in the mirror and say, is this just me trying to set up more merchants in my temple so that I would be more conveniently taken care of? Or is this about the mission? I think what we're we're gonna be, church, is a church that looks at sacrifice as the way. Sacrifice is the way that we go forward. Why? Because Jesus says, if anyone comes after me, you must deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. You must sacrifice your life to go follow me. You think it was, it was uh, uh, really helpful and, and exciting for Jesus to get beaten and go to the cross? That was a sacrifice, y'all. He prayed to the Father to take it away from him, but then he, at the end of the day, said it, not my will, but your will. Not my will, but your will. We follow the Jesus who said sacrifice is the way. Why? Because he is the way. And that is what he did. That is what he does. We're going to be a church that uh, engages in experimentation. Why? Because we're going to try some things. And we're going to throw this out there. We're going to see if it sticks with people. We're going to see. We're just going to try things. Why? Because that's what faith is. Too many churches are not willing to risk anything because in their minds, they have too much to lose. Church, I think there's too many people to lose for us not to make some risk because faith means you leap. Faith causes you to step out of your comfort zone and go forward and to go forward. So we're always gonna be about mission, mission, mission. We exist to lead generations into a life-changing, ever-growing relationship with Jesus Christ. Too many churches are dying, not because there's no one there, but because the members who are there are older than anyone else who is coming, and the church at one time will then cease to exist. Why? Because they have elevated themselves, and this is not to pick on older people, because us young young people do it too, because the church should be a multi-generational body, right? But what we end up doing is we placate to our own preferences at the expense of trying to reach people for Jesus. And we have to always get outside of ourselves and say, you know what? I have a lot to add. I have a lot to do. God's not done with me yet. He's still got some things to do. There's still some people to reach. There's still some people in my community, in my neighborhood, who or heading to hell, and they need to know who Jesus is. So that's what we're gonna be, church. That's what we're gonna do. And then after Jesus rebukes someone, there's always a response. Verse 18, this is what happened. This was the the people who were rebuked. This is what their response was. The chief priests and the scribes heard it and started looking for a way to kill him. For they were afraid of him because the whole crowd was astonished by his teaching. You know, every moment of every day, Jesus will rebuke us. He will say, this is not the way. This is the way, I'm the way, follow me. And every time that happens, we have a choice to either respond positively to that and say, yes, Jesus, I know that you're the the one on the throne. I know you have things kind of figured out. I know that I need to follow you and I'm gonna just go with you wherever it is that you go. Or we can say, you know what, Jesus, I'm not cool with that. You know, we can look at the, the, the court of the Gentiles in our own hearts, the, the foyer of the hallway, so to speak, of our own hearts, and say, Jesus, why are you turning over that table? That was, I care about that. That is what I want. And say, Jesus, no, no. We wait till Jesus leaves. We go get the table again, and we set it right back up. And say, this is, makes me happy. This makes me comfortable. I like this. And church, I know I'm, I'm, I'm sounding a little harsh, Okay. I'm not trying to be harsh for harsh sake. I'm preaching just as much to you just as much as, as I am to me right now, okay? I just feel like we have no more time. The time is now for us to reach this community for Jesus Christ and that we don't have any time to just play around, we don't have any time to play around to elevate our own preferences above the mission what Jesus has called us to do. So what do we do from here? Well, in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, this is probably a verse that's familiar to you. This is what God says to God's people when we are in a time that people are rebelling. This is what he said. Then if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and restore their land. Church, you may think we need a revival in our day and time. After you've seen those numbers, you're kind of confronted with the reality that we need a revival in our time. We need something, we need God to move mightily beyond what we could ever ask or imagine in our day and time, in our world, in our lives. But what we see in scripture is that every time a revival breaks out, every time refreshing comes out, every time renewal comes out, where does it begin? With God's people. With God's people humbling themselves, praying, turning from their, not the other people's wicked ways, but turning from their own wicked ways. And what will God do? He will hear them, He will forgive them of their sins, and He will restore their land. He will restore those around them. Why? Because God is working through His people. Church, we are unstoppable when we humble ourselves and pray and repent. Because there are many things in our own world, in our hearts, that we need to let Jesus turn over the table in. Amen? So here's a powerful prayer that I would encourage us to start praying on a regular basis. Jesus, just as you turned over tables in the temple, please turn over the unholy tables in my heart. Just as you turned over tables in the temple, please turn over the unholy tables in my heart. Because many of us, we have some tables. I've got some tables, you've got some tables. We're all in the same boat. We all got some tables. We all are in need of Jesus to come in and turn them over. To hear the money, the clanging, to start going around when the money changers had their table thrown to the side. And Jesus will meet us in the midst of that. He will teach us the way forward and he will lead us into a place where forgiveness happens, where renewal happens, and he will meet us, and he will use us. And reality is, this is what Christ does in every human heart. This is what Jesus does in every human heart. When he sees you broken and defeated, when he sees you lost and afraid, when he sees you in the midst of your sin, he says, I'm gonna come in, I'm gonna turn over the unholy things in your heart, I'm turning over the tables in your temple, I'm making you into a holy place. That's what Jesus did when he went to the cross, when he died the death that he did, when he rose again, he made it possible for you and I to be a holy place, a holy dwelling place for the holy God. He will take you to places you never thought you would go, but you need to surrender to him. So if you're here today and you've never surrendered to the God Almighty who loves you, this is your time. For those of us who know what it means to surrender our lives, to repent of our sin, to go down in the waters of baptism, to raise up to new life, you know, and you would tell anyone who has not yet done that, you would tell them, it's worth it. It's worth it because God takes me places and he's always pushing me, always stretching me and always taking me to a new place. It's an adventure. Anybody know that following Jesus is an adventure? Sometimes it's not all exciting, right? Right? Sometimes it's hard, but it's the way of life. And so I would love to talk to you after service if that's you here today. Uh, But as we close, I wanna let you guys know about something that we're gonna do as a church body that I wanna encourage you to be a part of. It's a night of prayer and worship. Because I think we as a church, we need to elevate prayer and worship in our world, in our lives, so that God can do something new in us so that we can go and be used by him in our world. So Sunday, September 22nd at 7 p.m., we're gonna meet in here. And the room's gonna look a little different. We're gonna have some stations of prayer. We're gonna be leading you in that for all of us as God's people to come in and have a renewal of prayer, a renewal of worship. And God, I believe, will meet us in that. And when we humble ourselves and meet him, he's gonna change us. And through our obedience, he's gonna transform this community in which we live. So I encourage you to come to that. Let's pray.